Amen. Well, he woke up that day and he stepped outside only to find a, a most unpleasant surprise. You see, what happened was they were completely surrounded. So as he stepped out that side that morning, he looked around only to find the situation was hopeless. They were completely surrounded. You see, what was happening was this. The king of Syria was out to get Elisha the prophet. The king of Syria wanted to do him in. The story is found in 2 Kings chapter 6. You see, Elisha was a defenseless old man living in a remote place way out in the desert. But yet the king of Syria had sent an entire army to go and get him. An entire army with horses and chariots and weapons out to take out the prophet Elijah. Because as sometimes happens, Elisha the prophet had been speaking the word of God and the king of Syria didn't like it. So Elisha, he's here camped out in the desert in a very desolate place called Dothan. And the only person there with him is his servant, a young man who, who these days is kind of like what we would refer to as an intern, right? He's kind of interning with Elisha the prophet. And this intern wakes up that morning, he steps outside only to find that on the hills surrounding them, they are completely surrounded by an entire army. The situation looks hopeless. I mean, two men, one of them's very old, they're by themselves, they have no weapons, they stand no chance against an entire army of men with horses, weapons, and chariots. And we read there in 2 Kings chapter 15 that the young man, the intern who was there with Elisha, he cried out and said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elisha who remained calm the entire time, he told his servant, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And in verse 17, we read that Elisha prayed, and this was his prayer. Oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And it says that the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around. You see, things were not as they appeared. The situation looked hopeless. It appeared as if they were completely defenseless. But Elisha prayed that God would open the eyes of his servant to see the spiritual reality of the situation that they were in. To see beyond just the physical, material circumstances that this young man had seen, that he would see beyond that and see the spiritual reality. Because the reality was that even though the servant couldn't see it, there was a great multitude of angels whom God had sent to protect Elisha and this young man from this pursuing army. And truly, if, as you read the story, God did save them from that situation. And amazingly, he saves them without a single drop of blood being spilled. And you see, like that servant, we too are often in a similar situation where we don't see the whole picture. We only see the physical, material circumstances that surround us, the situation that we're in, the actuality physically of what we're in. We need also to have the eyes of our hearts opened to the unseen spiritual realities around us. And so here, 
as we turn to Ephesians, what we have here in the first part of Paul's letter to the Ephesians is that Paul is taking us on a journey up into the heavenly places. And he's showing us the spiritual reality of what it means to be in Christ. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord of your life and Savior of your soul, then what that means biblically is that you are in Christ. That is your position. That is your identity. That is who you are if you have put your faith in Christ. You are in him. And if you are in Christ, that's what we've been studying. What does that mean? What is that identity? What is that position? If you are in Christ, we have seen that it means that you are forgiven. You are redeemed. You are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, in the spiritual realm. You are a saint. You are an heir. You are part of God's plan for the ages. You see, when the servant of Elijah had his eyes open to the spiritual reality around him, it totally changed his perspective on his material circumstance on his present circumstance you see the same is true of us when we get a glimpse of the spiritual realities of of who we are in Christ and of all the spiritual blessings that our that are ours in Christ it changes the way that we view our current circumstances that we're presently in you see when he, when God opened Elisha's servant's eyes to see that spiritual reality to see that there was this multitude of angels sent there to protect them on the hillside. Think about this. It didn't make the problem go away, right? It didn't make the army suddenly disappear. It wasn't like, oh, well, you know, there's a bunch of angels and the army's gone. No, the problem, right? The pressing problem was still there, but his perspective on it was completely different. He saw it totally differently. And that's exactly right, too, as we study the spiritual realities of who we are in Christ, of all that God has done for us in Christ, how rich we are in him. It doesn't change the difficulties in your life. It doesn't make your problems go away. It doesn't pay your bills for you, right? It doesn't help you uh, suddenly get along with your wife if you've been fighting. But here's what it does. It gives you perspective, it changes your perspective. It doesn't make your problems go away, but it helps you see those problems completely differently, right? Here's what it did for Elisha's servant. It helped him to see that even though he had this problem in his life, God was at work even though he couldn't see it. That God was there, God was taking care of him, and it was going to be okay. And the same thing is true of you and I. When, we, when our eyes are open to see the reality of the spiritual situation, it doesn't always make our problems go away, but it does help us to see that God is there at work, even if we don't presently feel it or see it. So today, as we continue our study through, through Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we get to this point where now after, in the first part of this chapter, Paul has been talking to the Ephesians about God, now Paul is going to talk to God about the Ephesians. He's going to pray for them. And that's always a good practice, by the way, that after you've talked to people about God, you should also talk to God about those people. And here's what Paul prays from verse 15. Paul prays this. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul says, I pray for you guys all the time. And here's why. 
because I hear that you're doing well. I hear that you're doing great, that you have faith in the Lord and that you have love for each other. Loving God, loving each other. That is what a healthy church looks like. That's the goal for us. That's what we want to be about. We want to have faith in God and we want to love each other. Paul says, I give thanks for you guys. I appreciate you so much and I pray for you. He says, when I heard how well you were doing, I was moved to pray for you. Now think about this. Paul says, I was moved to pray for you. Why? Not because there was a problem or a crisis in their church rather just the opposite he prays for them because he hears that they're doing well now think about this who are the people that you pray for the most I know that personally my tendency is to spend a lot of time praying for those people who are struggling, for those people who are in crisis, for people who are struggling in their faith, they're backsliding or they're caught up in some sin. But here's what Paul's saying, he says, when I heard that you were doing well, I was moved to pray for you all the more. You know, in our modern healthcare, right, the, the philosophy behind our modern healthcare system is that you go to the doctor when you're sick right but you don't go when you're not sick right so you go when you have a problem but the ancient Chinese on the other hand they had a different philosophy of of healthcare. their system was different they would pay someone a, a yearly stipend so that that person would keep them healthy throughout the year and, and I think many people today in our culture they follow a spiritual health regimen which is more similar to the modern healthcare system they don't do anything until something goes wrong right and then when they have a crisis and their life's falling apart then they show up in church and they they start asking people to pray for them and they start seeking out godly biblical counsel but how much wiser is the person who strives to remain healthy all the time so they don't have to go through this crisis all the time of their life falling apart before they turn to the Lord before they seek counsel before they ask to be prayed for now I don't know about you but I have seen in my Christian experience I have seen a lot of people who I thought who everybody thought were doing great and I've seen them fall suddenly and super hard I don't know what your experience is but from the outside, I've seen people who looked like they were doing great, that they were strong, that they were healthy. But then they, they came under spiritual attack and they fell and they stumbled and it was hard. You know, we need to follow the example of Paul the Apostle and not only just pray for those people who are going through crisis at the moment. We need to pray also for those people who appear to be doing great, right? Because here's the thing, things are not always as they appear. Oftentimes those people who seem like they're doing really well, they are also in great need of prayer and support because they're being tried, they're being tested, even if you can't see it. Paul goes on in verse 17 and he prays for them. He says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is his immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? 
So just like the servant of Elisha, we need to have the eyes of our hearts enlightened. That we might see more than just the physical circumstances, the physical actualities that are around us. But that we might know and see the spiritual realities in Christ. Because when we understand the hope and the riches and the power that God has given us in Christ, it puts all of our physical circumstances and situations in a new perspective. And so as we are establishing, that's what we've been doing here in Ephesians, is establishing our identity in Christ. Here in this section, we, we re realize three more aspects of who we are in Christ. Number one, in Christ, you are sealed. Okay, number one, in Christ, you are sealed. That's what we see in verses 13 and 14. We're going to come back to that in a minute. In verse 17 through 18, we see that you are enlightened spiritually. And number three, in Christ, you are empowered. That's what we're going to be talking about. And each of these realities, it it's relates specifically to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. In the Bible, we read that there are three different relationships that the Holy Spirit has with people. And they correspond to three different words with in and upon with in and upon so let's talk about these the holy spirit is with all people the holy spirit is in those who are believers and the holy spirit comes upon some people to empower them to fulfill particular callings that god has given them you know, when Jesus was here on earth, we read a lot through the Gospels as we read the story of Jesus walking with his disciples, doing ministry. We read over and over that he would tell his disciples what his plans were for his earthly ministry. And one of the things that he repeated to them over and over is that one day he's going to go to Jerusalem and there he will be arrested and he will be crucified. And he told them this over and over, but it seems that no matter how many times he told them, they, they didn't get it. Maybe it was wishful thinking. Maybe they just didn't want to acknowledge what he was saying. Sometimes it seems that they even intentionally changed the subject. They didn't want to hear him talking about death and leaving them. And, and one time you might even remember that Jesus brought up this topic of his death and going to Jerusalem and Peter said, no, Lord, I will not let that happen to you. No way. And that was when Jesus told him, get behind me, Satan. You are not mindful of the things of God. This has to happen. This is the reason I've come, to give my life as a ransom for many. But then we get to the Gospel of John, chapters 14 through 16. And in that section, Jesus is in Jerusalem on that final journey to Jerusalem where he will be arrested, where he will be crucified, and of course later resurrect. But there in John 14 to 16, we read about how Jesus and his disciples were in Jerusalem. They're enjoying the Last Supper together only a few hours before Jesus is arrested. And Jesus starts talking to them again about how he's going to go away. And you can imagine that for the disciples, this was very upsetting. This would not be something that they were very happy to hear about. They had heard over and over from Jesus that the time was coming, the time is short, that he is going to go away, but now reality is setting in. This is it, right? 
They've only got a few more hours left before they lose their friend, their leader, the one who taught them, the one who cared for them. And Jesus, obviously seeing the distress on their faces and hearing it in their voices, he speaks to them and he speaks to them in order to comfort them. And what does Jesus say? If, you, if you've got your Bible, please follow along with me in, in John chapter 14. And I'll read from verse 1. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me that in my Father's house there are many rooms. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. He's trying to comfort them. But then he goes on to say this, words of comfort relating to him going away. He says in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. But he says this, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither knows him or neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. He says, I'm going to send you another helper, the spirit of truth. You know, one thing that's painfully apparent as you read the stories about the disciples is that these guys need some help, like really bad, right? These guys, if you read the story, they're just kind of bumbling all the time. They're messing stuff up, you know. Peter's like cutting off somebody's ear and Jesus is fixing it. No, that's not what we're about. And then the little kids want to come to Jesus and they're like, get lost. Jesus doesn't like kids. And Jesus is like, no, I do. Come on, this is not the heart of the Father, you know. And Jesus goes into a town and, and they reject his message and, and these disciples come up to him and say, hey, Jesus, now, we got an idea. Why don't you call down fire from heaven and just kill them all? And they're like, yeah. And Jesus is like, no, guys, you don't get this, do you? You still don't get it. You're just, if I wasn't here, you guys would totally be messing this up, right? And Jesus would send them out, and then they would come back, and he would be like, all right, well, guys, you need to work on this and that and that, right? They weren't, they needed some help, right? They're kind of like the 12 stooges, right? They're messing stuff up and they come and then Jesus fixes it and he's always there to bail them out. Now up until now, Jesus has been there for him. He's been there to count on. They've, they've been able to count on him for direction and guidance and wisdom and comfort. But now Jesus is telling them, guys, I'm leaving. I'm going away. And the question is, what's going to happen? And there's this fear, right, that the ministry is going to be ruined. Everything that Jesus has established and built over the last three years of nonstop ministry is just going to fall apart because it'll be put in the hands of these 12 stooges and they're just going to mess everything up. But Jesus, he tells them this. He says, no, I'm not going to let things fall apart after I'm gone. I know that you guys need help in a major way and I'm not going to abandon you. I'm going to send you another helper, the spirit of truth. And in John 16, which is the continuation of this talk about the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. You know, the Greek wording of what Jesus said is very important because when he tells them, I'm going to send you another helper, he's telling them, I will send you another helper 
of the same kind. Another helper just like the one you've had. Not a different kind, but one of the same kind. In other words, Jesus was promising to send them a helper who would help them in the same way that he had helped them. And Jesus even tells them in in chapter 16, verse 7, he says, I know that you guys may not be able to comprehend this right now, but believe me, it is to your advantage that I go away and I send you the Spirit to be your helper. And, And Jesus describes their relationship with the Holy Spirit in this way in chapter 14, verse 7. He says, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him, but he says this, but you know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. He says the spirit is with you, but the time is coming when the spirit will be in you. So the first of these three relationships that the Holy Spirit has with people is the with relationship. The Holy Spirit is with all people, whether they're believers or not. The Spirit is with them. And Jesus tells us in in John 16, eight through 11, he tells us what the work of the Spirit is as he is with people in this first relationship. Jesus says this, that the work of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. So in other words, the Holy Spirit is with all people and he's speaking to their hearts. He's speaking into the depths of their hearts and he's convicting them of the fact that they are sinners, that they need a savior, that God loves them despite the fact that they're estranged from him and that God has made a way for them to be reconciled, right? He's telling people, put your faith in Jesus Christ. It's the call of the spirit whispering in everybody's ear. And this is a wonderful and and encouraging fact, actually. What it means is that God is actually at work in our cities, in our families, by his spirit, right? He is with all people, convicting them of their sin and their need for a savior. So when you talk to people about Jesus, when you talk about the gospel to people, the words that you are saying They're simply going to resound with what their heart has already been feeling because the Holy Spirit has already been talking to them and, and, and speaking to their hearts for years. So the Holy Spirit is with all people. But the second relationship and the one that we're focused on here in Ephesians chapter one is that the Holy Spirit is in those who are believers. That is why at the Last Supper, Jesus said, the Holy Spirit's with you now, but the time is coming when the Holy Spirit will be in you. And we see the fulfillment of that, right? You go a few chapters later. After Jesus has been crucified, after he's risen from the dead, in John chapter 20, Jesus meets with his disciples behind closed doors, and it says that he spoke to them. He said, peace be with you. My peace I give to you. And then it says that he breathed on them, and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. And that was the moment when they received the indwelling of the Spirit when they were born again, right? Here in Ephesians chapter 1, we read in in verses 13 and 14, it says this, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. 
This image that Paul uses here of the Holy Spirit as a seal of our salvation, as a guarantee of our inheritance in Christ, this is an image which the people of Ephesus would have been very familiar with. Because Ephesus was a major port city right there on the west coast of what's now a modern day Turkey. And it was at Ephesus that crates would be loaded with merchandise to be shipped across the Aegean Sea to what's now Greece, right? So what would happen is they would, they would load up these crates with goods and then they would seal them, right, with a mark. Usually it was a ring. A, man would have, a merchant would have a signet ring that had his symbol on it, right, or his name. And he would press that into wax and he would seal those crates and it was a mark of ownership. A seal was also a mark of commitment because this same, it says that he is a guarantee. That, that is the idea of a down payment or a, an engagement ring. So here's the picture that Paul's painting in Ephesians chapter 1. He's saying that when you put your faith in Jesus, that God places his mark on you, his seal, his Holy Spirit inside of you to mark that you belong to him. And then he will see you through that voyage across the stormy seas of life and he will make sure that you make it to the other side, to his side, as his bride. The Holy Spirit is within you as a down payment, right, to show you that God will indeed bring to completion that good work that he has started within you. And so what this means is that every person who has put their faith in Jesus Christ as, as Lord of their life, as Savior of their soul, who's been born again, those people, you people, have the Holy Spirit inside of you. Paul says to the Corinthian Christians, he says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. So one aspect of our identity in Christ is this. You are sealed. You are sealed. God has placed his spirit within you as a seal that you are his, as a guarantee that he will see you through till you get to heaven, to the wedding feast of the Lamb. But along with being a seal of our salvation, there's another thing that the spirit inside of us does. And that is this, and this is what we read about here in Ephesians. He enlightens us spiritually. Here in Ephesians, we, we, Paul prays that God would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation. He's talking about the Holy Spirit to enlighten our eyes that we might see and know all of the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. In, in that same discussion in John chapter 14, talking about the Holy Spirit, Jesus said this, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and he will bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. In 2 Corinthians, Paul the Apostle says this, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. 
So the work of the Spirit is to enlighten our hearts spiritually, that we might understand spiritual truth, that we might discern spiritual things, that we might see beyond just our physical surroundings. But not only does the Spirit of God enlighten us spiritually in general, right, as, as regards what we have in Christ, but the Holy Spirit enlightens us also specifically. Paul says there in that same text in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he ends that section by saying, who has understood, who has known the mind of God? But we have the mind of Christ because of his spirit within us. So all of this, uh, you know, all of us, me and you from time to time, we find ourselves in situations where we're faced with a decision, where we need to know, God, what should I do in this decision? And sometimes it's not black and white, right? Because honestly, the black and white decisions, those are the easy ones, right? Should I lie, cheat, and steal? No, right? Those are, that's an easy one. I just answered that for you. But it's the decisions that are not black and white that are the difficult ones. Those are the ones where we need some help. We need a helper who can reveal to us the mind of Christ, the thoughts of God. You know, what's interesting in the Bible is that it rarely gives us specific instructions about what to do in a particular situation. You ever notice that? The Bible very rarely gives us specific instructions about what to do in a particular situation. Much rather what the Bible tends to do is give us broad overarching principles, right? Broad overarching principles and when it comes to how to apply those principles in your life individually and and in your situation in particular, you come and say, God, what should I do? He says, see me for the details, right? See me for details. For example, Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, give generously to others as God has given generously to you. God says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. But then... Each of us is forced to ask the question, what does that look like for me in my life? What does it look like for me to love my neighbor in this given situation? How should I give generously? How much is generous? You know, how much is too much? How much is enough? How do I love my wife as Christ loved the church? What does that mean for me? What does it look like for me in my situation? God would say, well, you're going to have to see me for the details. You see, God could have given us a how-to manual, right? That's what so many people want the Bible to be. They want it to be a how-to manual, right? Ten easy steps to fix every problem in your life, right? Just here's what to do in this situation. Here's how to fix your car and here's how to fix your marriage. Just follow these ten easy steps. But God did not do that. He didn't give us a how-to manual. Instead, he gave us a helper, right? Because God desires fellowship with us. And I think God knows pretty well that if he would have given us 
like a, a cut and dry handbook for what to do in every situation, our tendency would be when we got a problem, we come, we open up to page 3010, we read the 10 steps, we do them and we move on. But God desires fellowship with us, right? He, he created a system in which we are forced to be dependent on him, in which we are forced to seek him about our lives personally. So instead of a handbook, he gave us a helper, the spirit of truth who knows the deep things of God, who knows the thoughts of God. And he placed it inside of us. That Holy Spirit, he placed him inside of us to reveal to us the mind of God. And God would say this, as you walk in the Spirit, as you walk in fellowship with me, I will give you wisdom and revelation for every particular situation you face. So in Christ, by the Holy Spirit, number one, you are sealed. Number two, you are enlightened spiritually. And here's the third one, you are empowered you are empowered. The third relationship with the Holy Spirit that we read about in the Bible is, you know, relates to the word upon. This is when the Holy Spirit comes upon an individual at a certain time for a particular calling that God has placed in their life to empower them to be able to fulfill that which God has called them to do. In Acts chapter one, we read this. After Jesus has raised from the dead, right before he ascends into heaven, he's meeting with his disciples and it says this in Acts one verse four. It says, while staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And he says in verse eight, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And we read that exact same sentiment also before his ascension at the end of Luke's gospel. There he says this, that he said to them before he ascended into heaven, behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you. Stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So this third relationship with the Spirit, this coming on of the Holy Spirit for the purpose of empowerment, to empower us to fulfill the callings that God has placed in our lives, it's, it's referred to in many ways in the Bible, right? It's called the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Acts. It's called being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's called the coming upon of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. It's referred to as power from on high in the Gospel of Luke. And this is what happened on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came upon the believers. They were baptized in the Spirit and they received power from on high to fulfill the calling that Jesus had given them. And what's important to notice here, I think this is important, is that it is separate from their salvation, right? The Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost happened after Jesus breathed on them in John chapter 20 and said, receive the Holy Spirit. That means that these are two separate events. So if they had already received the Holy Spirit when Jesus breathed on them, then what was the point of waiting for Pentecost? What did they need to wait for? Here's what they were waiting for. It was a different relationship with the Holy Spirit than simply the indwelling. It was the coming upon of the Holy Spirit to empower them for the ministry that Jesus had called them to do. 
Jesus told them that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon them. That word power in Greek, it's the word dunamis, from which we get our word dynamite, right? It's explosive, dynamic power that God's talking about. And what is the purpose of this power? We read here that it is the, for the purpose of enabling them to carry out the calling that Jesus had given them. And what was that? To be witnesses for him to the uttermost parts of the earth. Now listen, when you look at the disciples before Pentecost, do you see a dynamic group of people? I don't. You know what I see? And this is what we see. Uh, a group of people, they're not very good at being witnesses, right? And they've just been entrusted. That's their job now is to go and be witnesses. And they're not very good at it. And they're certainly not dynamic. Look at this. Peter, he's like the head disciple. And, and somebody asks him, hey, do you know Jesus? Most of us would be like happy if somebody asked us that. Yes, I do. Let me tell you about him. Peter's like, no, I don't know him. And a little girl asks him. And he's like, no way. I don't know him. And it says there even in the text that he used foul language to deny that he even knew Jesus. This guy is supposed to be like the main guy. And their job is to bear witness to Jesus, right? And talk about a dynamic group of people. Instead of being out amongst the people, telling them Jesus has risen from the dead, where are they? Every time we see them, they're behind locked doors, hiding because they're afraid that the people who killed Jesus are going to come for them next and kill them. Talk about a dynamic group of people. Huddled together, afraid, scared, and definitely not dynamic and definitely not good witnesses. But then everything changes on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes upon them and they begin to speak the word of God with boldness, right? Something has changed. These guys then go out and change the world. The Spirit comes upon them. They speak the word of God. And now suddenly people are listening and people are responding. There's a power behind it now. There's a, an authority. There's a boldness which they had not had before the Holy Spirit comes upon them. On the day of Pentecost, this is what's interesting. The Spirit was in them because Jesus had breathed on them and said, Receive the Spirit. They were already born again, but what they needed was the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And this is something, like I said, we read about in the Old Testament, in the book of Judges, we read that God would raise up a deliverer for the people, a specific task, and it says that the Spirit of the Lord came upon them to empower them to do that. The prophets, the Spirit of the Lord would come upon them to speak the word of the Lord to the people. The question for you is this, what has God called you to do? What has God called you to do? Has he called you to be a, a husband or a wife? Do you think that's a calling? I do. I hope that you do too. Has he called you to be a mom or a dad? Those are legitimate ministries and callings, and I hope that you view them as such. Has God called you to, to serve in a particular ministry in a particular way? We have all been called to be witnesses for Jesus Christ in the places where he has strategically put us, in our workplaces, in our families, in our circles of influence. But whatever it is that God has called you to do, you know, not, not only do you need wisdom and revelation about how to do them particularly, but here's what you also need. You need the empowering of the Holy Spirit in order to do it effectively. 
in order to do spiritual work effectively. Paul says in Ephesians, I pray that you might know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Do you get what he's saying there? He's saying this, the power that God has given you is the same power with which he raised Jesus from the dead. Do you think that's enough power to help you with the thing that he's asked you to do? I would say absolutely that is enough power. It's enough to conquer death. And in verse 22, we read this, that he put all things under his feet. That's Jesus Christ's feet. He put all things under Christ's feet and he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let me tell you what, if all things are under his feet, then that means that things that are over my head are under his feet. Things that are over your head are under his feet. Jesus entrusted 12 stooges with the task of world evangelism to a world that really didn't want to be evangelized at all. Do you think that task was a little bit over their heads? Absolutely. But the good news is that even if things are over our heads, it's all under his feet. Do you think that those guys needed a little help to fulfill the calling that God had given them? Most definitely they did. Do you think that you need help? to fulfill the callings that God has placed on your life, to do them effectively so that they produce fruit that lasts? Absolutely you do. And so God not only calls us, but he empowers us. And people, you know, you hear people say things like, well, I just don't know if I'm strong enough to kick this habit. I don't know if I have the strength to overcome this addiction. My anger just seems to control me. These lustful thoughts are always with me. I just can't get rid of them. Paul, if he was gonna pray for you, he wouldn't pray, Lord, give him the strength to overcome. You know what he would pray? Lord, open his eyes that he might see the strength that you've already given him. You see, it's not that we need more power, it's that we need to utilize the power that has been given to us in Christ. So part of our identity in Christ is this. You are empowered. You are empowered. Not only does God call you, but he empowers you to do the things he has called you to do. So I join together with Paul and I pray that just as God opened the eyes of Elisha's servant, that God would open our eyes to see the spiritual reality of the situations that we're in, to see who we are in Christ, to see the hope that we've been called to, the riches of the inheritance in the saints, and the greatness of his power towards us who believe. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you for the hope that you've called us to, Lord. Lord, we thank you that when we get a glimpse into the spiritual places, into the heavenly places, Lord, in the spiritual realm, we see that all that we've been blessed with in Christ and we see who we actually are in Christ, Lord, it changes our perspective on our current circumstances. Lord, I pray that you would give us that perspective this morning again, afresh, Lord. Open our eyes like you opened the eyes of Elisha's servant that we might see the hope that we have the riches of the inheritance we have in you. And Lord, we, we pray that you would help us to see the power that you've given us in Jesus.
that we might live according to it. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.